Hey, have you got bare walls at home or in your office? Do you want to surround yourself with the majesty and inspiration of our mountains? I'm talking truly incredible photography of Western North Carolina landscapes. RedRockPhotoNC.com. Stay tuned for details. It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What's going on? Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for listening. I do appreciate it. It is Monday, August 10th. And I want to give a special thanks to all of the patrons that make the show possible. Patrons, for example, just a few to name here. WC and Karen and Pamela, Trent, Eric, Dustin, Bob, Anamorpher, Tavis, Lisbeth, Larry, Sarah and Barry, I appreciate all of your support. I could not do it without you. Thanks so much. Um, I sent an interview request to Ariana Peekery or Peckery. Uh, she did not respond, but she used to work at MSNBC, and she had a piece on her blog that she posted, Personal News, Why I Am Now Leaving MSNBC. And... You probably heard about this. I got a lot of coverage, uh, I think, probably on talk radio. Got some coverage uh, online as well. And uh, she quit at the end of July. And she wrote this open letter. And a lot of people used it to like, oh, in your face, MSNBC, it proves what we always knew about you all this time, right? I'm not going to do that. Um, I think she's making larger criticisms of the media model. And I think that's a lot of times lost in some of the uh, the coverage of this piece. So let me give you some of the highlights out of this blog post. And by the way, I'm going to get into, the, I mean, this whole show is going to focus on media, media ethics, the way the uh, uh, media cover stories, decisions that it makes. So she says, July 24th was my last day at MSNBC. I don't know what I'm going to do exactly next, but I simply could not stay there anymore. She says, my colleagues are very smart people with good intentions. The problem is the job itself. It forces skilled journalists to make bad decisions on a daily basis. And that's, and by the way, that's, that, that's what she says. I would add, that doesn't even address the bad journalists and the decisions they're making. Because if, because uh, I agree, by the way, with her premise, it forces skilled journalists to make bad decisions. That's true. But when you have unskilled or poor journalists, the damage uh, is much greater. You may not watch MSNBC, she says, but just know that this problem still affects you. All the commercial networks function the same. And no doubt that content seeps into your social media feed one way or the other. It's impossible, or sorry, it's possible, she says, that I am more sensitive to the editorial process due to my background in public radio, where no decision I ever witnessed was predicated on how a topic or guest would rate, quote unquote, rate, she says, which I had to chuckle at that. Because there's this idea that public radio isn't bound by ratings, right? We don't... and. Look, it's sort of a peek behind the curtain here. Uh, there is uh, the way the uh, there is an exclusion that occurs in the ratings business between commercial and public radio. 
Okay, so when commercial stations are out there saying our ratings are whatever, they are not comparing themselves to public radio because public radio isn't included in the ratings. But we know the ratings. Like, we do know the ratings of the public radio stations. Okay, they just, they call them, these are commercial stations because there are pros and cons and there's a different model in all of this. The biggest pro for the public radio stations is that they get a lot of government money. Right? They get taxpayer funding, which is why I've made this joke for years, but it's true. Next time you listen to an NPR show, um, listen at the very end where they run through the the credits and who they thank. And there's like 14,000 people in the credits. You know how many people work on commercial radio shows? One. Maybe if you're lucky, you get a call screener as well. <laughs> like, it's just a different line of work. But to her point, she never had to worry about whether a story or topic would rate, whether a guest would rate, whether it would be good for the ratings, because everybody in the newsroom, everybody in the operation, everybody at NPR, they all think the same about these things. They don't have to wonder, is this good for ratings? Because they, they know that if they're interested in the story, then their left-wing audience is also going to be interested in the story. And I say that as a person who has listened to a lot of public radio in the course of his life. I have, and I like some of the programming. But I will tell you that there are a lot of times when you're listening to a program, and it doesn't even need to be a political program, but all of a sudden slipped right into the middle of some story is some obviously lefty assumption or or position or issue. And it's just, and it's just mentioned as a matter of fact. Nobody, it's it, like a fish doesn't know it's wet, right? That's <laughs> the entire employee base at NPR. And they will tell you, no, we're just calling balls and strikes. We're right down the middle, right? So uh, she never had to worry about ratings. And she never even thought about it at, uh, at her job at NPR. So then she goes to MSNBC and all of a sudden there's this overt discussion about uh, ratings and whether or not this is going to be a good topic. Does it have legs and stuff? Because this is how commercial media outlets do, in fact, talk. The longer I was at MSNBC, she says, the more I saw the choices. It's practically baked into the editorial process, and those decisions affect news content every day. Likewise, it's taboo to discuss how the ratings scheme distorts content or it's simply taken for granted because everybody in the commercial broadcast news industry is doing the exact same thing. And on this, she's correct. On this part, she is correct. Everybody is playing by the same rules. They're all looking at the ratings and they're using the ratings to determine uh, what works and what doesn't. And sometimes the ratings um, will drive decisions that are really, really bad for the audience. And she talks about this in the piece as well, and I've noticed it for years, which is if you sit and watch any station long enough, whether it's Fox News, CNN, or MSNBC, if you watch them for a long enough period of time over the course of like a day, just you watch all of the shows, they all cover the same topics. They, they do. They cover the same topics, and they don't even cover them well. Like, that's the worst part about it, is they bring people on to cover a topic, and, they'll, and, that, and that'll last about, what, five minutes? They'll do a five-minute segment with two or three guests, so everybody gets to speak for like a minute, a minute and a half, and then they're on to the next topic for the B block, 
And the B Block is the exact same content as the other show that was on the previous hour. It was their B Block as well. <laughs> I don't understand. I do understand why. It's because the people who are making the programming decisions, they are all looking at the same numbers. And this happens in radio as well. You have markets that know exactly when people are listening and they will start tuning out at a certain time. And you'll have programmers who look at those results and they'll say, uh, oh my gosh, what were you talking about at you know, 9.37 a.m. on Tuesday. You're like, well, I was talking about the school lunches. Like, oh, don't talk about school lunches anymore. Obviously, look, your ratings went down at 9.37 a.m. at that time, and that's that topic obviously drove people away. Now, they never can attribute, like, a rise in your ratings to say, oh, you were talking about something that was really good, and everybody started listening at that point, which is absurd because, like, how would they know what you're listening to or what you're what you're talking to to tune in to listen to it, right? They wouldn't know that. But every time somebody drops off, that's always indicative of content, right? It's, yeah, it's almost like you can't win uh, as the talent. Behind closed doors, industry leaders, she says, will admit the damage that is being done. By the way, if you've got damage at your uh, place of business or at your house or something and you need to uh, rent some equipment to clean it up, I have got the recommendation for you. It's General Equipment Rental in Weaverville, and you can get the Karcher Mister. It's a misting system. It's like the size of a shop vac. It's on four independent wheels, so it rolls all over the place. It's cordless, and it has the Vital Oxide Disinfectant, all right? which is safe for kids and pets, food contact surfaces uh, like countertops and appliances and dishware even. Uh, This all-in-one, hospital-grade, EPA-approved vital oxide disinfectant, it's a germicidal disinfectant sanitizer and a deodorizer. It kills 99.9% of infection-causing bacteria and viruses, including the coronavirus, but all the others too like MRSA and E. coli and everything. Also, it gets rid of uh, mold, mildew, and fungus as well. And you don't have to rinse afterward. It's non-toxic. It's hypoallergenic. It's odorless. It's colorless. It's super easy to use. You rent it once a week and, you know, do it after you close down the business at the end of the night or something, and then it's good for like up to 10 days. The Karcher Mister. And then you only got to do is just worry about spot cleaning. It's fantastic. Like, I was wondering when somebody would do this, and General Equipment Rental has done it, the Karcher misting system with vital oxide disinfectant at General Equipment Rental in Weaverville at the intersection of Merriman Avenue and Dreams Creek Road. It's family-owned and operated for three generations, meeting all of your equipment rental needs. Go to generalrents.com. That's generalrents.com. And if you go to generalrents.com slash Pete, you can get a coupon for two free cloth face coverings you're welcome general equipment rental in weaverville generalrents.com think outside your toolbox so the woman's name is ariana peccari or peccari peccari oh maybe that's what it is peccari well i mean it's spelled p-e-k-a-r-y p-e-k i'll call her ariana okay ariana she says, we are, a, uh, we are a cancer and there is no cure. Well, she's quoting a successful and insightful TV veteran. We are a cancer and there is no cure. But if you could find a cure, it could change the world. As it is, she says, this cancer stokes national division, even in the middle of a civil rights crisis. The model blocks divert. See what I mean by a fish doesn't know it's wet? These are the things that she's advocating. And it's like, this is, you know, truth, capital T truth to her. And so, you know, we never had to worry about ratings at NPR, right? Because everybody at NPR 
sees this the same way. They see all this stuff the same way. The model, she says, blocks diversity of thought and content because the networks have incentive to amplify fringe voices and events at the expense of others, all because it pumps up the ratings. And so she's talking about what? The far left. That's what she's talking about. That the far left is somehow, right, moving these organizations to go after that demographic uh, because it, it sells more, right? It's a, even though it divides, right, even though it's creating all this division, and she says it blocks diversity of thought. Now, she's saying diversity of thought, but I'm going to assume she's talking about diversity of thought from sort of the center to the left, right? I'm not sure she would be cool with a bunch of, you know, right-wingers <laughs> uh, populating NPR newsrooms all across the land. She says this cancer risks human lives even in the middle of a pandemic. The primary focus quickly becomes what Donald Trump was doing poorly to address the crisis rather than the science itself. As new details have become available about antibodies, a vaccine, or how COVID actually spreads, producers still want to focus on the politics. Important facts or studies get buried. That is true. She is absolutely right about that. There is It's one of the biggest con uh, concerns and complaints I have with Governor Cooper's press conferences, right? He comes out there and he says, oh, we're relying on science and data and facts. And then he gets zero questions at all about the science. It's all speculative journalism. It's, well, when, when are you going to make a decision about this? Oh, what are you going to do about that other thing over there? It's all this advanced looking. It's never, well, wait a minute. What does the science say about the masks? Have you read science that say masks don't work? What do you think about those? Could we have a discussion? What what uh, prompted you to go this direction with closing the bars and the keeping the breweries open? He can't answer these questions. So I digress. The current process, she says, which can be pretty rudimentary. She says, basically, think basing today's content on whatever rated well yesterday or look to see what's trending online today. And that is actually how programming is determined. Folks may not realize that. She, she is correct here. I mean, obviously, she worked there. This is correct. If you are trying to do a show for today, you look at what did well yesterday. And if you had a particular topic or you saw a show in the lineup, like maybe Rachel Maddow, because I think she worked for Lawrence O'Donnell's show. He's like, Anyway, so she's working for O'Donnell's show, so maybe it's another show, Maddow, and she did this segment and it did really well. So you're going to look yesterday and say, oh, okay, let's do that. Let's keep on that. This topic is doing really well with our audience. Just keep hammering away at it. And that's one way you get the stories, and then the other is to see what's trending. Oh, look, everybody's talking. Is it a white dress or is it a blue dress? Oh, I can't tell. Let's do that story. Right. <laughs> I understand, she says, that the journalistic process is largely subjective, true, and any group of individuals may justify a different set of priorities on any given day. Therefore, it's particularly notable to me, for one, that nearly every rundown at the network basically is the same hour after hour. And two, they use this subjective nature of the news to justify economically beneficial decisions. She says, I've heard producers deny their role as journalists. A very capable senior producer once said, quote, our viewers don't really consider us the news. They come to us for comfort. Again, personally, I don't think the people need to change. She says, I think the job itself needs to change. There's a better way 
to do this. Okay, I've just given you the highlights. It's a it's a two page uh, post. Now, on that last part, though, I disagree. I think a lot of the people do need to change. I do. I think a lot of people do need to change in these environments um, because they believe what they they believe in what they are doing. And some of them may lament like, "Oh, I can't believe I got to do it this way," but they are still doing it. Right? They're still deciding to continue to do it. And I think a lot of the people are there because they enjoy that power of doing it. They like the uh, the access and the prestige they get when they say, I work for MSNBC, you know, uh, you know, Lawrence O'Donnell. Mm-hmm. I'm his producer. Yeah, I write for his uh, show. I think there's a lot of uh, purchase that you get for that. I do. Um, you know, who else made a change was Stacy Redman. He was working a retail job and he was working, you know, 70 hours a week or whatever. And his daughter asked him, like, oh, when do you always got to go to work? Like, why are you always working? And it kind of broke his heart. And he was like, you know what? I need to, I need to, I need to change. I need to reassess priorities. Well, he had already started uh, in his spare time as a hobby photography. And so he said, you know what? I'm going to go for it. He has been shooting landscapes for two decades. Red Rock Photography, redrockphotonc.com. You want to see stunning and amazing photos of the Blue Ridge Mountains? You got to go to redrockphotonc.com. His work is brilliant and it is affordable at all sizes. It can, you know, fill any space you're looking to fill. redrockphotonc.com and if you use the promo code Pete, you'll get 20% off. redrockphotonc.com. So after she writes this uh, blog post, Ariana Picari, after she writes this, uh, it goes viral, and she then uh, writes a follow-up, and this one's much shorter, and she says, uh, you know, thanks to everybody, I'm overwhelmed and heartened by your reaction. Uh, she says, I was starting to think people don't care about the news, either inside the industry or out, but you do care, and that gives me enormous hope that Change can and will happen, and there's no way I can do this by myself, so I welcome the moral support. She says, uh, I feel the need to say something about how Fox News reported my story yesterday. The reporter contacted me for an interview, and to be honest, I wasn't inclined to do an interview with Fox for all the reasons I outlined in the piece. And I don't know if I can trust them because, again, like MSNBC, their job is to rouse their audience. I had not responded yet when they posted their story anyway. As it turns out, Fox News inadvertently proved me right. My, uh, my concern, clearly stated in the post, is with the entire industry because each outlet uses the same funding model. So so now, see, so now she's, which she didn't mention the first time, but she's now narrowing the target or the focus to, uh, to the funding model. Again, remember, she comes from NPR. So the headline, she says, skewed the intentions of my piece, and they removed almost all of the context in which I explained the systemic nature of the problem. That is unfortunate, but not surprising. Uh, she says, I regret if my piece was presented as an attack on a single network and that her concerns are not ideological in nature, which I don't think that's true either. But um, again, fishes don't know they are wet. So this was the uh, this story made a lot of uh, headlines about a week ago. Also, right about the same time, these all these stories connect. Also at the same time, or a couple days before, the Associated Press had made the second of basically a two-part decision. And for folks who aren't aware, media outlets all follow, uh, or virtually all of them follow, 
the AP style book, they call it. And the AP style book says this is how you write news copy for it to uh, comply with our standards. So we have a style book and it addresses, you know, uh, when you're, you know, identifying somebody like, for example, like you read in the wall street journal, I think they still do the M S S R period. Like, yeah, I, I don't know why they continue to do that, but the, you know, how do you credit somebody with a PhD? Do you call them doctor? Do you put the PhD at the end? And so all these little formatic things. And if you're in journalism, you've got a copy of the AP style book. Okay, so the AP comes out with an update, and sort of a two-part update. The first part came a while ago, several weeks, maybe a month or so ago, and then the second part came much more recently. And the first decision they made was to capitalize black when describing people. So no longer are they going to leave black as a lowercase b, they're going to call it black with an uppercase B, capital B, black people, black person, black community, black owned business, whatever. So now, obviously, what's the next question that arises? Do you capitalize white? (laughs) Do you capitalize white people? So they made this second announcement uh, a few days ago. And drum roll, please. Yeah, no, they did not capitalize white. So I have their explanations for this. They say, for the decision to capitalize black, they say, we are today making an important change to AP style that stems from a long and fruitful conversation among news leaders, editors, and diverse members of our staff and external groups and organizations. AP style is now to capitalize black in a racial, ethnic, or cultural sense, conveying an essential and shared sense of history, identity, and community among people who identify as black, capitalized, including those in the African diaspora and within Africa. The lowercase black is a color, not a person. So again, uh, this capitalization, so if you're referring to someone who is black who is in Africa, then black is also capitalized because they have a similar, a shared... um, sense of history, identity, and community with blacks in America, which I'm sure is probably somewhat uh, news to a lot of African (laughs) people uh, to find that out, but maybe not. Uh, These changes align with longstanding capitalization of other racial and ethnic identifiers, such as Latino, Asian American, and Native American. Uh, So I guess those are going to have to change at some point, too, because they're still calling themselves Asian American and Native American. But those are capitalized, as is Latino. Uh, They say we also now capitalize indigenous in reference to original inhabitants of a place. And I read that part and I thought, define original. I have some questions about that. Who's original? Who would be original (laughs) to which locations? (laughs) Anyway, our discussions on style and language consider many points, including the need to be inclusive and respectful in our storytelling and the evolution of language. We believe this change serves those ends. As a global news organization, we are continuing to discuss within the U.S. and internationally whether to capitalize the term white. (laughs) So this was what they decided Originally, they said reporting and writing about issues issues involving race calls for thoughtful consideration Uh, precise language, and an openness to discussions with others of diverse backgrounds about how to frame coverage 
or what language is most appropriate, accurate, and fair. Avoid broad generalizations and labels. Race and ethnicity are one part of a person's identity. Identifying people by race and reporting on actions that have to do with race often go beyond simple style questions, challenging journalists to think more broadly about racial issues before having to make decisions on specific situations and stories. In all coverage, they say, not just race-related coverage, strive to accurately represent the world or a particular community and its diversity through the people you quote and depict in all formats. Omissions. So wait a minute. So wait, so or a particular community and its diversity. So you're in all coverage, strive to accurately represent the world and its diversity through the people you quote and depict. Well, that seems to be completely antithetical to the thing that you just announced that you are capitalizing black because they all share a, a sense of history or something, right? They have, yeah. So like you, you literally are saying we're going to capitalize the word black when referring to racial, uh, ethnic, or in a cultural sense because it conveys an essential and shared sense of history, identity, and community. But remember, everybody, make sure you reflect the diversity of the monolithic community that we're labeling with this capitalized letter, right? Omissions and lack of inclusion can render people invisible and cause anguish. Okay, omission and lack of inclusion can render people invisible and cause anguish. Except white people, apparently, because the AP says we are totally going to continue to lowercase the term white in racial, ethnic, and cultural senses. Uh, speaking of senses, by the way, if you have any sense whatsoever, you have probably already been to Old Grouch's Military Surplus. Now more than ever, Old Grouch's Military Surplus in downtown Clyde uh, has an expanded line of first aid kits and medical supplies for all kinds of emergencies. Step-by-step -step instructions are included so anybody can follow them. Uh, and uh, you know, you're you're going to be you know less reliant on somebody else and maybe less likely to go to a hospital and pick up the Rona. Body armor, all kinds available. These are made to NATO specs. Uh, these are for in-store or over-the-phone purchases only. Face masks made locally by a disabled veteran family out of military parachutes, so they're lightweight and soft. He has steel gas cans, the pre-band kinds, uh, and they'll paint them actually for you. If you want the original look, you keep that too. Plus, tons of real U.S. military surplus. For more than three decades, Old Grouch's military surplus on Main Street in downtown Clyde. The shop is open Monday through Saturday across the street from the anti-aircraft gun and at oldgrouch.com. And tell them I sent you. So there was the here's the AP decision. Associated Press deciding they're going to lowercase white. They're going to keep using white to describe white people uh, with a lowercase w. Okay, well, what's the legitimate reason for this? What's the rationalization for this one? They say there was clear desire and reason to capitalize black. Most notably, people who are black have strong historical and cultural commonalities, even if they are from different parts of the world, and even if they now live in different parts of the world. <laughs> what are you talking about? Commonalities? What are you talking about? <laughs> like, how does this how does this sound anything else other than 
like black people are the same. Like this is what the a- this is what the AP is saying. The Associated Press is basically saying, you know, we're going to capitalize black because like they're totally all kind of the same. <laughs> That's what they're saying. How is this not seen as racisty? Good lord. They say um, this includes the shared experience of discrimination due solely to the color of one's skin. I got a news flash for you guys. There are people on the continent of Africa that have never experienced racism based on the color of their skin. And they're black. <laughs> they're black. And uh, I suspect there are white people that have experienced racism. And they're white. And they're all over the world, too. See, this is this is the problem when you start thinking in terms of only seeing people's race and identifying, reducing everybody to these to these groups based on something as superficial as skin pigmentation. There is, at this time, the Associated Press says, less support for capitalizing white. See, so it's our fault. (laughs) It's the white people's fault. We did not mount a strong enough campaign, apparently, (laughs) to convince the Associated Press that they needed to capitalize white. Our bad. Maybe we should take this up. Maybe the Pete Callender show should do this. Maybe this should be something that we all spearhead is uh, uh, an effort to get white capitalized in the AP style book. What an achievement that would be, don't you think? (laughs) Um, So they say white people generally do not share the same history and culture or the experience of being discriminated against because of skin color. So we don't get the capital W because we don't share the same history and culture, unlike all of the black people, according to the AP, that they do. (laughs) (laughs) do you know how many people live in africa it's a really big continent there's a lot of people there okay um in addition we are we are a global news organization and in much of the world there is considerable disagreement ambiguity and confusion about whom the term includes (laughs) okay so because it's global it's a worldwide organization when we capitalize white People aren't going to be sure what exactly you're talking about. Yeah, because that's the thing. There are a lot of white people that don't actually identify themselves through the racial prism at all times. Uh, There are people that identify themselves first and foremost as, you know, from a certain country or of a certain religion, you know. Uh, What's next? We agree, they say, that white people's skin color plays into systemic inequalities and injustices, and we want our journalism to robustly explore those problems. But capitalizing the term white, as is done by white supremacists, risks subtly conveying legitimacy to such beliefs. So this is like the OK symbol, right? That's what this is now. Now we can't capitalize. We don't get a capital W. We don't get a capital W in the AP because a bunch of uh, uh, a bunch of racisty white supremacists they capitalize white. By the way, why do you think they capitalize white? Could it be that they're doing so as sort of a thumb in your eye because people capitalize other racial groups? So they're like, well, well, if you're going to do it, we're going to do it. But this idea that well, we can't we can't capitalize the the word white because you know. Those white supremacists over there do it. So I guess then what? White supremacists drive a certain kind of truck. You're you're not going to drive that truck if they uh, wear a certain kind of clothing. I mean, aside from the white robes. But like, 
You, you, you can't wear that? I mean, this is how absurd, this is how absurd things have gotten in media land, where this is actually cited as a reason. And, I mean, they're basically, they're making, they're making a racist, a race-based and racist argument here, right? They're saying that people should be defined predominantly by the color of their skin, and that the color of their skin dictates all sorts of similarities, culturally, historically, like just because you have the same skin color, you're going to have this, quote, shared sense of history. And that's not true, folks. Not everybody believes in the same things. But there's this constant, I call, I mean, it really, it really tends to be, yes, racisty, but also this white savior complex that so many on the left suffer from. They see themselves as these martyrs, like they're going to, they're going to save uh, black people. And they, and so they, they just assume that all black people have the same concerns and views on things. It's, and it's only based on their race. Some have expressed belief, the AP continues, that if we don't capitalize white, we are being inconsistent and discriminating against white people. Or, conversely, get this one, we are implying that white is the default. (laughs) So by (laughs) how much you want to bet in our lifetimes, we're going to see this rule change and the Associated Press is going to come back later, like a decade down the road or something, and they're going to say, white wasn't, how come white isn't capitalized, but all of the other races are white supremacy. See that? It's like, because that's, oh, it's just automatically assumed that the person you're talking about is white, and that's why they don't even capitalize it, but they got to capitalize all of the other groups. Meanwhile, they're doing it. Well, I mean, really, like, why are they doing this? Right? It's, it's a show of, uh, of support, of allyship. That's the big word. Uh, white allies. They, they want white allies. That's what this is about. We're with you. We're with you. We'll, we'll, we'll keep our W lowercase. It's a shorter letter, which, show, which shows our subservience to you. We also recognize the argument that capitalizing the term could pull white people more fully into issues and discussions of race and equality. (laughs) We will closely watch how usage and thought evolves and will periodically review our decision. As the AP Stylebook currently directs, we will continue to avoid the broad and imprecise term brown in racial, ethnic, or cultural references. If using the term is necessary as part of a direct quotation, we will continue to use the lowercase version. So brown (laughs) is still lowercase, but not going to get used unless somebody says it, then it will get used. This is so, like, this is absurd. You guys are supposed to be the standard bearers here, right? You're supposed to be the ones to say this is uh, a uniform rule to apply throughout. But now you're focusing all of this thought and attention on whether to capitalize words. White, black, Latino, indigenous, Asian American, Native American. And you're afraid that if you capitalize whites, like you do for everybody else now, that somehow or another that elevates whites to a position of supremacy. Why would that occur? Why would that occur? Why would a uniform, th- I mean, again, think, got to go into the mindset of a, of a white savior here, and you got to think to yourself, why would, why would a uniform application of capitalization automatically create a superior group? <laughs> Unless that's what you think, right? <laughs> like they're, 
this is where their mind goes. No wonder they think everybody else is a racist. <laughs> this is what they think. My goodness. Like, I, I, yeah, I don't get, I actually had a, uh, I saw somebody tweeted out, this reporter, she tweeted out a suspect description. They were on the lookout for, this was down in Charlotte, and they sent out, because this, uh, apparently somebody, this guy, had uh, gone up to some woman in a park and asked her, you know, some, for some money or something like that, and then sexually assaulted her uh, in some park in Charlotte. And so police put out an APB, like suspect description and all this. And the reporter then types up the tweet and sends it out. And I'm looking at the tweet and it's, you know, five foot seven, brown hair, um, like every other description, like what he was wearing, like all these other descriptors except for the race. And so I asked her, did the police department withhold the race of the suspect? And she said, no. No, they didn't. So she did. No, I didn't press the issue. I didn't beat her up for it. But I could have. Because what is she doing? Right? She's protecting a suspect. She's protecting an accused racist or a rapist based on his race. This media person, this reporter, is saying you shouldn't know this vital piece of information to identify an attacker because racism. That's what she's saying. And that's absurd. That's absurd. The Now, if the person is arrested and you're describing the person who got arrested, then you do not need to name his race because they have a name for the person now, right? They've arrested somebody. You're no longer looking for somebody. The purpose of a description when someone is on the loose is to help catch that person by not providing a critical piece of information, such as their race. You've now limited the universe of suspects to all men, five foot seven and brown hair, <laughs> which like, what's that lineup going to look like, right? <laughs> You're bringing people in and they, you know, they have to pick out, you know, uh, do you know who it was that attacked you? And you got like three white guys and three Latinos and, and three black guys and uh, three Asian Americans and three Native Americans. You're just going to have all this random number of people. And it's kind of like, well, I know it was a white guy, so you could just throw everybody else out. It's one of those three, right? It's it just, it's insanity. It's lunacy. This is where we are as a society. We cannot even think logically or rationally about these things because everybody is so afraid of the mob. This is what happens. I call it the Salem witchification of America, right? Now, here's something else I call. It's a phone number, 333-4483. Buying or selling a home, you should call that number as well. 333-4483. Or if you would like, go to the website. I've done that too. Mountainhomehunt.com. That's where Christy and I began our home hunt uh, a couple of weeks ago. We started looking at homes and such and looking at some uh, land as well. All at mountainhomehunt.com. We set ourselves up with some alerts. And all of that is to get the the uh, the newest listings uh, when prices drop and new mark uh, uh, new places come on the market we find out immediately thanks to Rowena Patton and her All Star Powerhouse team three 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 forty four eighty three mountainhomehunt.com and uh, buying or selling she's the only agent I would call you should too so a couple of weeks ago Barry Weiss you remember this name you probably heard some uh, about this story Barry Weiss was a uh, well, she was a columnist, but also like an editor at the New York Times. And she put out a resignation letter on her 
uh, on her blog as well. This is now becoming a thing, I guess, where <laughs> these journalists quit and then they express the reasons why. And she said, uh, you probably heard the uh, sort of the, the poll quote on this was that uh, the New York Times is allowing Twitter to dictate its editorial content. And that is true, by the way. And she says that uh, she's resigning with sadness. Uh, she says she joined the paper with gratitude and optimism three years ago. Uh, she was hired with the goal of bringing in voices that would not otherwise appear in your pages. First-time writers, centrists, conservatives, and others who would not naturally think of the New York Times as their home. Why would that be? The reason for this effort was clear, she says. The paper's failure to anticipate the outcome of the 2016 election meant that it didn't have a firm grasp of the country it covers. Dean Baquet and or Baquet, 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 and others have admitted as much on various occasions. The priority in the opinion section was to help redress that critical shortcoming. And I was honored to be part of that effort, she says, led by James Bennett. But the lessons that ought to have followed that election, lessons about the importance of understanding other Americans, the necessity of resisting tribalism, and the centrality of the free exchange of ideas to a democratic society, have not been learned. Instead, a new consensus has emerged in the press, but perhaps especially at the paper, the New York Times, that truth is not a process of collective discovery, but an orthodoxy already known to an enlightened few whose job is to inform everybody else. And that is precisely what is occurring. Precisely. You have certain people that uh, believe themselves to be the creators of the norms, and they tell you what is and is not offensive, right? And that changes on a daily basis. And Woe unto those who said something yesterday that today is now offensive. You shall be canceled. Canceled could mean you lose your job, you lose your family, you uh, get dragged by people on social media, you may be, I don't know, the subject of death threats. All sorts of uh, really cool things happen when you get canceled in modern America. I mean, they're not throwing you into the uh, into the lake with rocks around your waist to see if you float like a witch just yet. Um, but I'm kind of seeing the trajectory of where that could happen. She says, my own forays into wrong think have made me the subject of constant bullying by colleagues who disagree with my views. They have called me a Nazi and a racist. And I have learned to brush off comments about how I'm writing about the Jews again. Several colleagues perceived to be friendly with me were badgered by co-workers. My work and my character are openly demeaned on company-wide Slack channels. Slack is a platform. So, like, internally where they all uh, chat about each other. God, can you imagine the nastiness inside that collectivist hive? Uh, anyway, uh, where masthead editors regularly weigh in. There, some co-workers insist I need to be rooted out of this company um, if it's to be truly inclusive, while others post axe emojis next to my name, obviously give her the axe, fire her. Still other New York Times employees publicly smear me as a liar and a bigot on Twitter with no fear that harassing me will be met with appropriate action because they never are. There are terms for all of this, by the way, unlawful discrimination, 
hostile work environment, and constructive discharge. She says, I'm no legal expert, but I know that this is wrong. Okay, so that's a shot across the bow, obviously, uh, to the New York Times. They should take it as such. Um, And I don't know how much money she's going to sue them for. And, oh my goodness, the depositions are going to be amazing if they ever occur. Um, But we shall see. We shall see. They may just settle <laughs> rather than rather than let any of this get out. Just pay her a bunch of money and make her go away. Um, this ties into a story that was done in the New York Times itself by a guy named Ben Smith. Uh, and he and I got to give them credit for this because they took a, a, a hard look and they did an interview with uh, this guy Backey, Dean Backey, the uh, uh, what's his face, the editor guy, and uh, they asked him about this stuff going on in the newsroom. Because this has been brewing for a while. In fact, the headline on this piece is called Inside the Revolts Erupting in America's Newsrooms. This is by Ben Smith. And he says uh, on the streets, uh, he he traces this back to Ferguson, right? That seeing the brutality of a white power structure towards its black, poor citizens up close and at its rawest, helped shape the way a generation of reporters, most of them black, looked at their jobs when they returned to their newsrooms. And by 2014, they had on Twitter a powerful outlet. The platform offered a counterweight to their newsrooms, which over the years had sought to hire black reporters on the unspoken condition that they bite their tongues about racism. Which is interesting. I was unaware that there, that this sort of unspoken condition existed in the progressive liberal newsrooms you know but then again like i'm not a progressive i am a fan though of schaefer smith design you know your website is really important to your business right you know that and you want it to turn up in search engine results you want it to look professional and user friendly uh, and you probably don't know how to do that i don't either but schaefer smith does schaefer smith design great design can solve a lot of your website's problems too professional services Corporate, small businesses, and entrepreneurs, Schaefer Smith can help you with graphics and photos, online store build out, search engine optimization, website maintenance and security. He does logos. He did mine. Uh, go to SchaeferSmith.com and get the most out of your website. That's SchaeferSmith.com. So now, as America is wrestling with the surging of a moment that began in August 2014, Ferguson, its biggest newsrooms are trying to find common ground between a tradition that aims to persuade the widest, wide, not whitest, but the wide, <laughs> like the largest possible audience, uh, that its reporting is neutral and journalists to believe that fairness on issues from race to Donald Trump requires a, uh, it re- requires clear moral calls. In other words, there is a conflict between this idea that reporters and and the paper itself needs to attract a wide audience, a large audience uh, across a diverse spectrum, and that to do that, you do what is sometimes referred to as the voice from nowhere types of narratives, where you know someone says this, someone says that, and that's the story. Objectivity. This is what has counted as objectivity for a long time. And what the new uh, wave of journalists are saying is that, no, uh uh-uh, it needs to be subjective. We need to be issuing clear moral calls. Now, of course, this all relies on the person who's doing the calling to have an understanding of what morality is. 
right? And therein lies uh, a bit of the problem, is that if your idea of morality differs from their idea of morality, then you're not probably going to be very interested in reading their work. And that gets difficult if you are trying to be a national newspaper. The New York Times no longer is any, right? They're not. It's just not anymore. And maybe that was inevitable, okay? Maybe that was inevitable. The conflict exploded in recent days into the public protests at the New York Times, ending in the resignation of its top opinion editor. This was the guy, James Bennett, who hired Barry Weiss. Um, because he, he quit because, or he resigned because he published an op-ed written by Senator Tom Cotton. And it was about what to do, how to deal with these protests. And Tom Cotton was saying, yes, we should send federal agents into these cities if these local governor or local uh, mayors or state governors won't control their people. Right. If they can't keep a lid on the violence, then the Fed should go in. And so Tom Cotton wrote this op ed. It ran. And the New York Times staffers of color said, you're literally putting us in danger which I'm not sure how that literally puts them in danger, but this is what they started saying, and James Bennett was forced out. Now, if your bed has forced you out because it's so uncomfortable, then you need a new bed, and you need to go to Mattress Man. And they've got the triple zero deal going on, zero down, 0% APR for up to 24 months, and zero payments for 90 days. Great deals, including $3.99 for a Queen Gel Memory Foam Mattress, and free bedding bundle, including sheets, protectors, and pillows with the purchase of select mattresses. Go to mattressmanstores.com or walk on into any of the four locations in Asheville, Arden, Hendersonville. They ship nationwide. They have five-star local delivery service. They have a 120-day comfort guarantee. This is where Christy and I got our mattress from. And we are very happy with it. We got a memory foam. We love it. It's like sleeping on a marshmallow. Now, they do have all of the other types of mattresses as well. So if you're looking for, you know, inner spring mattresses or a pocketed spring pillow top, natural latex, they have them all. They have adjustable bases because everybody's sleep needs are different. Let the sleep consultants help you pick the perfect mattress. And then, uh, you know, you're going to start getting really good night's sleeps. So take it from me. Go to Mattress Man, mattressmanstores.com. Experience the difference in Mattress Man. Buy local and sleep better. All right, so now let me tie this all together with a research paper that just recently came out. Uh, it's published at Sage, sagepublications.com. And here's the headline, Sharing Knowledge and Micro Bubbles. Okay, that's the headline of this. And here's the finding. It suggests that Washington journalists may be operating in even smaller, even more insular micro-bubbles than previously thought. You've heard about the bubble. These are micro-bubbles. They're so limited in their interactions um, than previously thought, which raises additional concerns about vulnerability to groupthink and blind spots. Journalists on Twitter had almost no exposure to Trump supporters. U.S. journalists are more likely to be insulated in liberal political bubbles in big cities that are growing bluer. In Washington, often referred to as the Beltway, journalists are overrepresented at 10 times the density and are paid more than anywhere else in America. 
Normatively, there is reason to be concerned. Yeah, there is reason to be concerned that insularity leads to blind spots because you don't know what you don't know, right? How political journalists make sense of what news to cover and how to cover it, particularly as peers across news organizations, stands to shed insight into the contours of the insularity long observed in political communication scholarship. They sampled more than 2,500 journalists in the Beltway. They conducted a social network analysis of over 133,000 tweets, along with analyses of word clouds and biographical and employment data. And in short, the Beltway's media bubble looks more like a collection of micro-bubbles, suggesting Beltway journalism may be even more insular than previously thought. Political journalists are high-ego actors whose loose connections to each other are facilitated by instant communication. And like most journalists, they're asked to do more with less time, which can lead to shortcuts and imitation. Yet even in a hybridized media environment, Washington political journalists still have outsized power, status, and influence in shaping what the public knows about politics. This goes beyond politics, though. This is the same dynamic at play in the New York Times, uh, you know, a war that has erupted in its newsroom, as well as publications all over America. This is a very dangerous thing because the gatekeepers of all this information, the ones that set the, the, uh, the narrative for the nation, right, they're being run by people who have very little exposure to anything other than their own ideas. All right, that's a wrap for this episode. I appreciate you listening. Subscribe to the podcast. I do appreciate that. Talk to you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone. <laughs>